viewers welcome once again to the goods a film podcast this is brian this is dan and brian i think your tv horror host instincts are showing because you just called our listeners our viewers oh good point you're viewing something while you listen unless (laughs) you are not a sighted person which is okay too all are welcome to listen to this show which is indeed a podcast but As we record here today, it is April 15th, which is the date that, at about 2 in the morning, the Titanic sank beneath the waves in 1912. So I have brought to bear a couple of adaptations of the Titanic story. In this episode, we will be reviewing 1958's A Night to Remember, directed by Roy Ward Baker, and 1997's blockbuster epic Titanic. Directed by James Cameron. Had you seen either of these movies before, Dan? So, I've never seen A Night to Remember. Titanic, I watched a lot of it at a friend's house, like, within a couple of years when it came out, but I did not remember a single thing about it. The only thing I remember about it is that I told my dad I watched it, and he got mad that I watched a movie with boobies in it. He didn't think I was mature enough for that. So that's really the main thing I remember. I knew there were going to be boobies at some point. So it was it was good to actually visit it now as, as an adult. And not just because I'm now of the requisite age of 13 to view the film. Yeah, it's got tit in the title. <laughs> but it was fun to catch up with both of these. So And, and I, as you mentioned, very timely. I actually really didn't know that much about the Titanic. And as we go, I will share some of my reactions about things that were probably common knowledge, but I just didn't know then and how I kind of felt about those. It's interesting how much there is that's been recorded about the night. Because, I mean, obviously everybody who was there was an eyewitness. And if they made it out, they were sought after for their tales and to give their account of their experience. But I think just in general, naval happenings are thoroughly recorded like everything about being on a ship the crew takes fastidious notes captain's log if you will and and so already they're primed to just keep record of every single thing that happens whether they're whether they're staff but i think it kind of bleeds over to the passengers too so my experience with these films i had never seen a night to remember before which is our official pick for today. But I first watched Titanic 1997 on TV in probably about 2006. Uh, Coincidentally, it was the same day I saw Forrest Gump for the first time. Man, that was a heck of a viewing day for you. Yeah, it was like six hours. But I only bring that up because Dan and I have been talking a little bit about Forrest Gump recently. But yeah, formative movie watching day. And, like, Forrest Gump wrapped up and they said, and up next, Titanic! And it was like 8 o'clock at night. I'm like, you know what? I've been meaning to watch this one, so I'll check it out. And then, shortly thereafter, on spring break in 2006, I took a trip to Greece with a teacher at our high school and a group of people in my grade. So this was 10th grade. 
And we spent the first week of the trip on a cruise ship going around the Greek islands. And so I, I had this movie fresh in my mind, and this was the first time I'd ever been on a cruise ship before. And actually the only time since, too. I don't know, there's some interesting synergy there. I can't necessarily recommend doing this, <laughs> but every 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 single thing that happened, I was like, oh, this is like that movie. Except that I didn't freeze to death. Did you find the boats and count it out and do the math in your head to make sure that if you guys were to hit an iceberg, they, that uh, you'd be able to get on a boat? Oh, good question. They did do something called boat drill as the very first thing on the cruise, which is where everybody puts on their life vests and follows like arrows on the deck of where you're supposed to go to get on the lifeboat. So ah, okay. Uh, they learned from their mistakes in some respects. Yeah, my subsequent reading, apparently this was like, I don't know, you know how like 9-11 changed the way that we th thought about airport security and airplane security. Titanic was a big one for... I mean, not, not in exactly the same ways, but for, for boat safety and boat security. Right. Yeah, and they established, like, the ice cutter service and Coast Guard weather stations and stuff in the North Atlantic. And then I was re-exposed to the movie when, in 2012, they did a theatrical 3D re-release. Because, obviously, 2012 was the centennial of the sinking in 1912. And this was my college senior year. And back on the home front, my brother also went to see the re-release. And it was a bonding experience for us when we talked about that we had coincidentally just both gone to see the 3D re-release of Titanic. That's awesome. I, I would have loved to have seen this in 3D with the sheer spectacle. I guess, obviously, it wasn't filmed in 3D, but you were impressed with how, how it conveyed in that post-conversion? Yes, the best part was definitely the opening scene, which, as we'll get to in a second, actually was recorded at the wreck of the Titanic. Like, James Cameron actually went down there. Yeah, I was kind of blown away by... We had actual, real Titanic in our Titanic movie. A little bit of overview on these movies before we dive into the plot. A Night to Remember was based on a book of the same name by a guy named Walter Lord a British writer. And Lord was a Titanic fanatic from a young age. And in putting together this book, he interviewed 63 Titanic survivors. Wow. So this was like, what, 46 years after the sinking. So there were still some of these folks around, certainly more than in 1997. And he did what he could to track them down and get their stories. And the result is this book that is like a slice of life documentary with lots of little snippets in this uh i guess you would call it an oral history dan likes to talk about oral histories about the makings of movies and things this is an oral history of the night of the sinking and what do you think of that title dan <laughs> i was complaining about this to you all week so there's a nicholas sparks book and movie called it's a something else to remember. What is it? I can't even... I get them all mixed up in my head now. Is it an affair? No, no, I don't know. No? No. See, that's another thing to remember. Is that another one to remember? Hold on. I'm going to look it up right now. A Walk to Remember. And so that movie was a sappy chick flick that came out when I was in high school and was kind of up with the notebook in terms of being the epitome of like 
something that cool guys should not be into. I've never seen it, but our good friend Colton, we were doing for a while trading tracks to listen to and to discuss. And he sent me a song off of this soundtrack called Only Hope that's actually recorded by Mandy Moore, who also stars in the movie. And it's this really lovely piano ballad, but it's, it's also kind of fascinating because it's a cover of a Christian rock band's up-tempo song that got adapted into this romantic ballad. And so I kept thinking, Night to Remember, A Walk to Remember, like, it just sounded silly for a very grave movie because what I had in my head when I heard it was A Walk to Remember and as a, as a sappy chick flick. It just strikes me as odd that they pick like a mysterious title almost for a Titanic film. It's like they want to keep it a secret that it's a Titanic movie. Also, like who who is the doing the remembering? Is it us as a society? I mean, obviously the the survivors are not going to forget it and the the 1500 people who died are there is no longer any remembering happening there. So I don't, I don't know. It's, it's, it's an odd title, but that's okay. This book was published in the wake of yet another adaptation. I decided to forego a copiously detailed list of just every Titanic adaptation that there's been because we'd be here all day. In fact, there are very many. Last week, I shouted out the 1943 so-called Nazi Titanic which is certainly an interesting case study. Uh, maybe next April 15th, we will take a look. But 20th Century Fox made a Titanic movie in 1953, a couple years before this book came out, that stoked public interest in the story once again. And actually, this movie wasn't even the first adaptation of the book. There was a TV screenplay that was put on live in 1956, this is really intriguing to me. I only found this out while writing up my notes, but I really want to see what Titanic Live looks like. <laughs> that is pretty bonkers. I mean, both movies do good work by the spectacle of a ship sinking, and it's hard to imagine a live play capturing that. So I'm with you. That would be a, a fascinating thing to look into. And this book kind of became a seminal text among people really into titanic historiography lord actually lived until 2002 and so he was able to write a follow-up called the night lives on after they rediscovered the wreck site in 1985 and he even served as an advisor to james cameron when he was making the 1997 film wow so this is kind of held up in high regard among people who have seen and studied different accounts of the Titanic sinking. I knew this going in. It's why I recommended that we check out A Night to Remember. I mean, obviously we'll talk a little bit more about both of them, but A Night to Remember is much more concerned with like the actual functioning of the ship and the crew and the survivors or the people trying to flee. And it devotes a lot of, of its time to, to that. And like officers and who they try to communicate with and things like that. I can see how it would be based off of a book. Those would be the people who would have had the best records too. And I imagine a lot of the officers survived. Um, so they could kind of recount that in, in pretty good detail. 
Right. They needed people to captain the lifeboats, so a good number of the officers did get off. At the start of A Night to Remember, we get some of these little snapshots, like Dan said. This whole movie is a lot of little vignettes of all the different people who have got things going on. And it does seem dedicated to capturing things with an eye towards reality and making sure things are as factual as they can get them. Some of these people that we meet, they're like going about their lives at their houses, getting ready to pack their suitcases and jump in the carriage or whatever conveyance is going to take them to the ship. There's this wealthy noble couple at like a Downton Abbey house. We get a middle class pair of newlyweds and this trio of young men who are going to be traveling in steerage which is third class. Okay, so I mentioned that there were some basic things about the Titanic that I just didn't know. So, okay, I maybe saw the movie. I think I saw most of, if not all, the movie back in like 1998 or 9 or something. And I knew that it starred Leo and Kate. I always assumed it was an American ship. I didn't know it was an English ship. And... You know, I got kind of mad when I learned that it was a British ship. This film is really British. Like, I always thought that the Titanic, I thought it was cool because it was like the epitome of American hubris and overconfidence and capitalistic vigor, bigger, more is better, that collapsed in on itself. And that the British get to claim this tragedy. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm kind of I'm kind of annoyed about that. And And... The Britishness in this movie just, it really rubs you in the face. There's like when people are starting to drown, they're like, oh, well, let's go sip some tea while we wait for this. And I was like, ah, oh, well. A couple things about that. There, Well, for one, there is a Titanic memorial in Washington, D.C. So if you look, it's there for some reason. I don't really know why. So it would make more sense to have it in New York. I'm sure there is one in New York, too. Interesting. But this is from a period where World War I hadn't happened yet. Britain was still the superpower of the world. And, like, the financial king, the heavyweight. So a lot of people who are into the Titanic story really see it as the end of an era. Okay, I can buy that. That kind of makes sense. So it, it's kind of like Britain's power is on the wane, or will be soon with the cataclysm of World War I after which America is going to be on the rise. Right. So like the, the leading industrial powerhouse and, and force kind of very symbolically sinking into the ocean. And actually watching this movie, I started to think about one reason that I enjoy Titanic movies might be because like a Christmas Carol, it's a class spectrum story about British society. Yeah, definitely. And both movies have, have really good depictions of the differences and also like similarities, things that draw us together. Right. The, the unifiers, uh, you know, the rich and poor alike celebrate Christmas and have potential to die if a ship sinks around them. But everybody's making their way to the ship. We get a title card that says it's April 10th which, by coincidence, was the day I was watching the movie. 
And then it like abruptly cuts immediately to April 14th, which is, I guess, the day where we have all come here for. It's the sinking day. But it, it seemed like we're jumping over a little bit by just not addressing those days at all. Yeah, I was surprised how quickly it got to the heart of the matter. But I guess it is called A Night to Remember, not three and a half days before A Night to Remember. <laughs> a lot of time in this movie is spent focused on the radio operators of Titanic and other ships in the area. And we see that already early on in the day, they're starting to get ice warnings. That there's icebergs about and to be careful. So so one thing that's kind of going on as, as we're doing this is it's hopping between different ships who are observing and noting different things and transmitting different messages. And I, I'll say that I got a little confused sometimes about like where exactly we were at any point. I didn't know the characters well enough to be like, oh, t- this person tracks to this boat. It wasn't until really the second half of the film when the role of each of the boats becomes quite clear that I was able to track like which officers were a part of and which radio operators were a part of which boat. Definitely. I'm glad I'm not the only person who is struggling with that because we just keep jumping from radio room to radio room with little in the way of establishing shots. And so it's easy to lose track of which boat we're actually in at a given moment. But to give the 411 for anyone who has not studied the timeline of the Titanic disaster, the the three big players as far as the ships, obviously there's the Titanic, but then about 10 miles away there was a ship called the Californian. And then further out, about 60 miles away, is the Carpathia, which is the one that ultimately comes and scoops up the survivors who are left. Which, if you're just coming to this story for the first time, you might think, well, what about that ship that's 10 miles away? What were they doing? How come they weren't the ones to come? And that makes up a lot of the meat of the story here. But at the start, at least, what Titanic's radio operators are focused on is sending out these like telegram postcards that the rich people want to reach people on the mainland it's kind of like tweets the 1912 equivalent of twitter (laughs) it's like i gotta update my status for my followers so don't interrupt with ice warnings and this understandably irritates people who are receiving these messages because it's implied that like this is mainly a thing that is used for important functional purposes, but they just keep getting these messages from these these rich people about make these dates and do these things and kind of adds into the hubris of the Titanic. I think it's really interesting that these ships had radio at all. I mean, 1912 is pretty early. Like, I don't really think of radio as being a thing until like 1920. But I guess that's consumer radio, like broadcast shows and stuff. Interesting, yeah. Whereas this was a industrial, almost military function. Right. So, military gets the tech first, always, whatever it is. The Californian encounters a field of icebergs and sends out a message like, Hey, 
there's a whole bunch of ice here to the point that we got to stop. So anybody nearby should not rush into the ice field. But because I guess because it was so close to Titanic comes through like super loud. And meanwhile, the Titanic operator is trying to broadcast the little tweet. And he says, shut up. Stop bothering me. <laughs> and cuts the Californian off. So this was our last chance at a saving grace, and it's been ignored. So kind of miffed at being rebuffed, Californian staff goes to bed and shuts their radio off for the night, which was apparently a thing that you could do, and at least at this early stage did do, but just <laughs> seems like a very bad idea. The movie puts a lot of heft into making you just really frustrated that someone could have saved the day, but they were lounging in their hammocks or whatever on, on the boat. There's a good line from one of the Californian broadcasters. He says, if they were worried about speed, our passengers wouldn't have taken this ship. Like, th they're free to go at a leisurely pace, but also <laughs> this attitude forebodes what's going to happen. Right. They're going to kind of just be perpetually late to the party. Uh, the worst one is, and I know you're going to get to this here, when the Titanic is setting off the rockets and they see the rockets and they're like, ah, I know those are rockets that are designed specifically for if you're in dire danger, but I forget even what their rationale is. They're like having a party or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. And this was brought up in trials after the fact, but Titanic sent up these rocket flares to try to get the Californians attention when the radio wasn't working. And I think the explanation was that, like, they were white flares and naval standards say to send a red flare if you need help. But, like, if you're sending eight rockets into the night, you <laughs> need something. Right. So, yeah, like, the consensus is there was miscommunication. They didn't really know what they were supposed to mean, but it seems pretty clear to a layman that rocket means pay attention to me at the very least right like <laughs> at least reach out to us hey can i help you out with anything over there <laughs> and later on like the electricity cuts off and the lights go away and the californians like oh they're gone guess they worked it out <laughs> yeah that must be oh and the ship's gone too huh that's weird yeah the ship the ship went away they must be fine but of course, we do get some scenes of the passengers and the staff in these little vignettes. We get a third-class party below the decks, which is a scene that kind of recurs in the 97 film, where all the largely Irish and Eastern European folks are dancing. We get this scene of one of the Irish guys that we've met earlier who is hitting it off with a Polish girl. And... We don't get a whole lot in the way of, like, a love story to parallel the thrust of 97. But there's a little bit here and there. Uh, also, the newlywed couple gets some exchanges with staff members on the ship that kind of recur in the 1997 film. Yeah, and they that couple also gets some of the stuff towards the end about will the woman go on the boat or will she not go on the boat? 
Yeah, and then she decides, I'll stay with you. Exactly. And then when everything goes to shit, I think they get squashed by a smokestack. So <laughs> always got to smash somebody with a smokestack in a Titanic movie. It's a good beat. There's also multiple scenes of a gambler. And I was trying to figure out if this was a historical figure because I have not seen this character before. And there's just a lot of scenes of him playing cards. And I think the idea is to show that he's like conniving when it comes to card playing and he's selfish when he's trying to win money from people. But then when the chips are down and he's facing disaster, he ultimately does a selfless thing when he doesn't climb into a lifeboat. Like once he's in the water, there's a lifeboat that is overturned and people are trying to crawl up on top of it and he like bypasses it and swims out to sea. This is at least according to the Wikipedia plot synopsis because when watching, I was trying to figure out what the deal with the gambler was and I guess that's the end he comes to. Yeah, one thing in both of the movies is so you meet up a decent sized ensemble and you get to know them in varying levels. And then towards the end, it's dark. Everything's wet. It becomes easy to lose track of who is who and what was this person's role again. And I think some of that is like intentionally thematic. It's like when disaster calls, all of us are just people clawing for survival. But I couldn't tell you other than just a few characters from each one how they ended up, basically. It's like, I remember the newlywed couple, the cook, of course, the captain, but the other people, are they did they get on the boat? Were they one of the people who fell off the edge? I don't know. These movies reward rewatching because you can focus on a different person each time and like find out their fate if you didn't catch it all the first time. So, of course, this is a Titanic movie. The ship hits an iceberg and starts taking on water. We get a scene where the architect of the ship, who happens to be on board, a guy named Thomas Andrews, talks with the captain, and he says that it is a mathematical certainty that the Titanic is going to sink in two hours. Because of the, the way it's designed, it can survive with four of its compartments flooded, but not five which was parodied in the Titanic episode of Futurama. Oh, if only 599 of the hulls had been breached, but not 600. <laughs> First of all, kudos to this guy. I assume that there's some basis in fact in, in the way that he was able to piece all that together real fast because he probably saved a lot of lives, assuming that's true. But the... I'm going to complain about the Britishness of A Night to Remember again. When he reveals that to the captain, the captain's like, I don't know exactly what he says, but, oh dear, well, we must all remain calm and go about our business to make this happen. And it kind of like diminished for me the intensity of the moment, I guess. Yeah, stiff upper lip. You don't want to have a panic. Yeah, I don't know. There's a scene in both movies where Andrews, the architect, like whispers to somebody, Oh, this is really bad and the ship's going to sink. You got to get to a boat. Which I guess it's realistic that you would say that, but like to be blatantly playing favorites with whoever you happen to see, I don't know if that's the best look. I I don't really know what the best thing to do would be. Obviously, people would want to get to boats, but 
not everybody can get to a boat, as we find out, because regulations, I think at the time, specified that, like, if the boat is more than 500 feet long, gotta have X many lifeboats. It was a off-the-scale type thing, where once it was above a certain size, you just needed to have X many lifeboats regardless of capacity. Uh, but this boat was like 850 feet long and had 2,000 people, or could have had 2,000 people. Let me think. There were 2,200 people on board, and there could have been more. Like, it was not as full as it could have been. Gotcha. But there were only lifeboats for like 1,200 or, or something. And ultimately, they didn't go out full. Right. Which for me was the most frustrating thing. I mean, I guess it's chaos. You know, everybody's doing their best. They did not optimize how to use those lifeboats. I guess we had the knowledge that really, as long as someone was on a lifeboat, they were going to be rescued within a couple hours. And so all you had to do was just float somewhere not in the water. And as long as you were floating, like if you could have had people standing side by side, as long as the thing wasn't capsizing, you definitely could have had more people. And they weren't even always full, you know, I don't know. That is, a, it's also a plot point in both where there's a couple of boats where they don't fill them up all the way and someone gets reprimanded for it and much consternation about what the role of the people who are out there on these lifeboats gently paddling away from the mass death and screaming and terror that's going on a couple hundred yards away from them. And of course you have the women and children first policy which the first mate and the second mate seem to interpret differently. A lot of this movie follows Lightoller, who I believe was the second mate, and he interprets it to be women and children only, but Murdoch, the first officer, you know, prioritize women and children is what he thinks, but if there's a man nearby and that's who's here, put him on the boat. So not too much communication going on here. It's a chaotic series of events. I will say this movie does a really good job of capturing the chaos and the way that everybody's maneuvering and trying to make things happen really well. Yeah. There are scenes in this movie of things that I had never thought about in a Titanic situation before that made a lot of sense. Like there is a moment where it keeps returning to a guy who's trying to build a raft out of chairs on the deck. He's just grabbing a bunch of chairs and tying them together <laughs> to make this thing that hopefully is going to float. See that, you know, obviously with the hindsight that anyone who doesn't get on one of those boats is a goner. That's the strategy. Start pillaging while you can anything that floats and work together with other people. Get something that, even if you could just get a couple people, or even if it's just you and yourself, or the case of T97, you got Jack and Rose, come up with something that you can jump out on and climb onto. I liked the chairs guy. That was good. There's also a scene of the gambler writing a note for his sister, and he gives it to somebody who's on a lifeboat saying, you know, here's her address, get this to her. And I've never seen that in a Titanic movie. It seems like a simple thing. Like, if somebody is going to survive and you know you're not that you would try to give them something to pass on word of your fate so one movie that this movie really reminded me of i don't know if you've ever seen it is uh paul greengrass's united 93 
Oh, I do. I like United 93. And the things that made me think of it is, first of all, it's very focused on the logistical operational element with very subdued, if any, melodrama. Yeah, and it unfolds almost in real time. Yeah. And there is, obviously, with 9-11, especially on United 93, there were like a lot of one last voicemails to your loved one. And that that moment made me think of United 93 in particular. Yeah, something I read about why this book and film were so popular in the 50s was that it harkened back to a time when people had a bigger window of time to deal with disaster. Like this shipwreck, they had two hours to think about what they were doing, which may not seem like too much in the big scheme of things, but... It's a long time to contemplate certain death. And it compared it to more modern disasters, like a plane crash, where if the plane crashes, probably nobody is going to survive, and generally it's going to happen faster than a boat sinking. But it kind of also paralleled to, like, what's the ultimate 1950s disaster? We talked about it last week. A nuclear disaster where people would just be gone in a flash and it wouldn't have that sense of Edwardian romance. I think that's a good way of putting it because a lot of things line up together to make the Titanic a really compelling story. You obviously have the symbolism, the hubris, the ship that can't fail, the, the dramatic irony in that. You have some of the things you've talked about with like the class differential that gets both highlighted but then kind of broken down and they just i think you put it put it well the edwardian romance like people slowly trying to to cling for their life like trying to make this dramatic escape and how we're, everyone on board was kind of a part of that it it makes for compelling drama for sure a couple good class moments i wanted to shout out uh, another scene that i hadn't had come up in a titanic movie previously is where the rich folks all make a run on, like, the safety deposit boxes of the ship. Gotta get all their trinkets and fur coats out of the coat room and stuff, which I had never thought about before. Yeah, A Night to Remember, much more than T-97, plays up the dramatic irony of particularly the first class. People who are like, oh dear, well... I don't know, just like all these these things where there's no concern whatsoever and they're all being hoity-toity before they realize what's actually happening. Yeah, after this blows over, we'll return to our cabins, so have tea ready for us. Yeah, was that one in both of them or was that one just in T-97? I, th- I think it was, some version of it was in both. One <laughs> downside or just complication of watching two of these in, in short order is that some of the beats, especially because they repeat so many of the scenes and the beats between the two films, kind of blur together. True. But it makes the recap a little bit shorter. That's true. <laughs> Another moment of the class disparity that I thought was pretty poignant is for a long time, the third class passengers are stuck behind gates on the lower decks. And eventually they are able to get those gates open. Somebody lets them up. And they come swarming up into the higher areas of the ship, the second class, and finally the first class areas. 
and there's a beat where they all pause for a moment and are awestruck at how spectacular the quarters are in the first class area. And of course, they're completely abandoned now and things are askew because everyone has gone running out. I think my favorite class moment in either of them is in T97. This is like right as Billy Zane is is being uh, awful to Kate. Or sorry, I guess her name is Rose in the movie. And Bill, I don't even know what Billy Zane's character's name is. But the guy comes in, he's like, well, it's Captain's orders, you see. I really must insist that you put on your life vest. I'm sorry, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And then it does a smash cut down to the the steerage. And a guy's walking through, just open doors. Get on your vest! And knocking him off onto the floor and then going to the next room. That, that got a, a laugh out loud for me this time. That's funny. But by this point, we're out on the decks. The ship's going down at the head. Everybody is finally coming around to the fact that this is it. Things are getting hairy. And and this is the part of the movie that had some of my favorite editing and sequencing in The Night to Remember. Because it did something a few times that really resonated with me. Where it would show these people in various states of understanding their impending doom. And then would like quickly cut to rushing water. And it was almost like a jump scare. Like the contrast of the sheer power of nature bearing down upon these people in contrast with their quaint human machinations as they are kind of learning what's coming on, coming to them, was pretty powerful to me. At the same time, there's this comedic subplot going on about the drunk baker on the ship. And this is actually a true story. And if you look with an eagle eye, he is in Titanic 97, but in a much more muted role. But the Titanic baker was a guy named Charles Jockin. And when he realized things were going south, he just went to his quarters and got really drunk. This almost makes this story seem like a good contender to be covered on buzzed on movies, I would say. <laughs> but after he got super shwasted, the baker was just kind of perambulating around. And he did throw chairs down to people off the side to hopefully give them something to float on, which kudos for that. Uh, but then he made his way to the back of the boat and just hung on to the stern until the very end when that was the last thing that went underwater. And then he was just kind of bobbing around in the water until somebody in the one boat that actually went back fished him out. So this is the semi-spoilers, but this is the path that they gave to Jack and Rose in 1997 so that they could be the last people off the boat and just show us everything that happened. But... The baker, I guess because he had the booze in his system, wasn't even that affected, apparently, by the cold. It's just kind of like, oh, what happened? Yeah, so I was a Boy Scout, and one of the things we learned there is that alcohol makes you feel warm because it expands some of the blood vessels, basically. It relaxes them, and while it's kind of like a, maybe not an urban myth, but like a kind of misconception that alcohol keeps you warm. In fact, it lowers your body temperature, despite the fact that you personally feel warmer. So maybe like he saved him from shock or something like that. 
I don't think the alcohol would have insulated him from the cold. I guess he's just one of those hardy guys who somehow survived being in. And I, I really liked that moment in A Night to Remember where he's just kind of like hanging on, as you said, completely shit-faced, just hanging on to a boat where people are dying, falling like flies. Even the people on top, someone dies, and then guy's like, uh, can we pull up this other guy who's just hanging on here? And pull him up and... I liked the focus on this guy in A Night to Remember. But it creates a little bit of tonal dissonance. That's true, yeah. It'll be, you know, cut from these rushing water scenes of doom that you say into, like, a kind of silly scene of him stumbling around. Uh, There's an exchange where a bunch of people run up to him and say, which way do we go to get out? what's, What's the way to the deck? And he says, all roads lead to Rome. (laughs) a couple more beats that we'll see pop up pretty unanimously in titanic adaptations the captain heads to the bridge to go down with the ship the band is playing on the deck Uh, usually you'll hear nearer my god to thee this movie they have them playing nearer my god to thee but it's a tune i hadn't heard before i noticed that too yeah so i guess this is this is one like away in a manger where there's like multiple commonly accepted tunes to the words interesting and as dan said you got lots of people thrashing around in the sea once the boat goes down but most of the lifeboats do not turn back despite the unsinkable molly brown calling for them to do so she says you know the those are your men back there we gotta go back but they don't just just the one upside down boat is floating around and scoops up some people and like maybe one other boat so i think i tracked this this is kathy bates's character in t97 and kathy bates rules she was awesome i wanted even more of her yeah she's really good she yeah she was great every moment she was on screen and then i think we see a lot of her in a night to remember and she's the one with just the wildly caricatured american accent and and mannerisms not even mannerisms like over the top oh honey yeah she she's married to a prospector or something it's like wild west or southern at the same time something like that yeah so in i know we're we're focused on a night to remember at the moment but i was trying to track in t97 kathy bates tries to get them to turn around and the curmudgeonly officer is like threatens to throw her off if she tries to basically make that happen is that kind of the last we see of it? Like they don't, we don't actually see them successfully turn around. I believe so. Gotcha. She was like shouted down. I liked the moment when the women banded together in a night to remember and agreed to go try and paddle back, or at least they thought thought hard about it. I'm trying to remember exactly how it, how it worked out, but that was that was definitely a good moment in a night to remember. For sure. After a few hours, the Carpathia is finally able to get there. The ship that had been 60 miles away. And they pick up the survivors, which honestly, I think it's pretty convenient that any ships are around that are able to suddenly fit 700 people at a moment's notice. Normally, I don't know that much about ships, but like I would assume that generally like on an airplane, you're traveling, accounting for the number of people you're expecting to have. And you would probably be hard pressed to suddenly have 700 more people in whatever means of travel you have i didn't drill into the details of all of this but 
if you managed to get on a lifeboat, you only had to wait a couple of hours until you were picked up, which is pretty remarkable that probably all or most of those people survived. Who knows? Like, I don't know if I were in that place, I would be thinking, like, am I going to starve to death out here? Is it going to be days? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I guess they were in an area that was like a shipping lane or just ships went through there. But even so, like the water is two miles deep and like the closest land is Greenland or something. So what freaks me out is like when the lights go out, because can you just imagine how dark that would be? I feel like it would be a darkness like we've never seen. I agree. Yeah. So James Cameron has background making thrillers and horror movies and that whole sequence phenomenal in in T97. I was scared personally watching it. I was like, Oh God, this is horrifying. The lights were flickering and going out and they eventually completely went out. And yeah, no, I'm with you. Like the darkness would make it all the much worse. I mean, it would drastically amplify the sense of terror, but light taller who is listed in the Wikipedia article as the star of the movie. And I, I guess gets a little more focused than most of the other characters. He's the second officer. He's the one who looks kind of like Liam Neeson and has the white turtleneck. Mm-hmm. But he debriefs with the captain of the Carpathia about what has happened. And we get some statistics that 1,500 people died and there were 705 survivors. So... About a third of the people survived. He says, there will be a lot of ifs after tonight. Because I think the guy asks, oh, if only we'd gotten here sooner. Or, you know, if only that other ship that was sitting over there had responded. But the light taller character says, there's all kinds of ifs about Titanic. You know, what if we turned faster? What if we had listened to the warnings? What if... Any number of things. What if it had been a few degrees warmer? But the culminating line is he says that the reason this disaster is going to go down in history is because we were so sure. Because even though it's happened, it's still unbelievable. I don't think I'll ever feel sure again about anything. And and then as a final ironic note, the Californian calls in. (laughs) They're like, hey, guys, got your IMs from last night. How's it going? What's up? (laughs) And Carpathia says, dude, it's too late. (laughs) You colossal dingus. And we get a little uh, end card that talks about some of the maritime regulations that were updated in the wake of the disaster. So that's a Night to Remember's plot. Did you want to shout out any... Moments that struck you or cast members that stuck out? Yeah, I had a few thoughts. One thing this movie did that I really liked as just kind of the structure of the way the film was assembled is we have something like three or four locations that we repeatedly check back in on. And it's tilting a little bit more. Oh, the people here are a little... They're not panicked at all, but now they're a little bit panicked. Oh, now everyone's gone. Oh, now things are falling. Things are sliding. And oh, everything's a little more tilted. And I liked how we had that good sense of place. It kind of really made you feel the shifting dynamics on the ship. I also was impressed, just really impressed, honestly, at how good the movie looked. Like the, 
the black and white is is really pretty, really well shot, and the effects kind of blew me. Like it was really believable. It, I I think of disaster movies from the seventies and earlier as like relying on like smoke and cheap explosions and stuff to kind of give you cues that bad things are happening. But this one did a really good job of actually showing water filling things up and like the the you had a real sense of what was actually happening and and how it looked and obviously nowhere near the level of T97 in terms of production value but there was very very few moments where I was like oh that's a cheap effect that is a pre-digital effect that I'm looking at right now like I was immersed by it so overall just very immersive and I obviously had my complaints with it but overall an immersive and uh impressive film yeah I was very impressed by how they realized the sinking there were not as many frozen corpses or as many stunt falls as in the 90s movie. Like, nobody nobody falls 200 feet and bounces off a propeller in the 1958 movie. But pretty much everything else is there. I mean, you see the whole ship lift up out of the water and be sinking down with the back end way, way up. It struck me just how much they were able to do for the 50s. Yeah. So one interesting thing about this one is, so it was filmed before the wreckage was rediscovered. And apparently, I didn't read too much about it, but apparently until the wreckage was rediscovered, there was mixed reports and not consensus about whether the ship had actually split in half. And we do not see it split in half because at that point they either thought it didn't or they didn't know whether or not it did. So that is kind of one detail in the sinking that to me was very notably different between the two. I did think it was interesting that Bernard Fox shows up in this movie, perhaps best known as Dr. Bombay, the witch doctor in the 60s sitcom Bewitched. And it's interesting because he also plays a more prominent role in the 1997 Titanic. He doesn't look like he's aged a day from Bewitched. Like... <laughs> From 1967, he looks identical in 1997. And he's also in the uh, the Brendan Fraser Mummy movie in 1999, where he, he still looks the same. So I don't know if he's got a Dorian Gray picture, or maybe <laughs> he just looked old as a young man. Yeah, you get some of those people. There's like three camps of people. People who look old, young, and then they continue to look old for the rest of their life. Like there's a famous one. I don't remember what it is. The guy, oh, I remember who it is. It's the guy who did the diabetes commercial. Wilford Brimley. Yeah, he always has looked old, even when he was a younger actor. It's kind of funny watching those people through the years and like comparing ages. Like in uh, Parks and Rec, the actor who plays Jerry or Gary or whatever he goes by is like one year older than Rob Lowe, who looks obviously much younger than him. Wow. But then you have people who will look young. We were commenting on Tom Cruise, how he seems to always look young. Like he looks like he's, I don't know, 35 or something in the time loop movie we watched with him, whatever that's called, Edge of Tomorrow. And then you have people who get noticeably older as time passes. And those are also some fun ones to look at. What did they look like in this movie versus what did they look like when they were in a movie 40 years later? Another actor that my dad pointed out was Desmond Llewellyn, who played Q in a bunch of James Bond movies, like with multiple Bond actors. But apparently, 
There's actually four cues in this movie. One of the factoids on Wikipedia says that Peter Burton, Desmond Llewellyn, Jeffrey Bailden, and Alec McCohen all played Q at one time or another. Oh my gosh, that's wild. So I don't know how that panned out, <laughs> that they're all in this movie. But it's when it's an all-British cast, I guess you're bound to see them pop up in other British movies. It's like the Harry Potter rule. I was just going to say that it's exactly like Harry Potter. You know, you know, there's so many movies where it's like, wait a minute, Timothy Spall is in this movie? And Maggie <laughs> Smith is in this movie? It's like, yeah, it's a British movie. <laughs> there's just so many in uh, Sweeney Todd specifically. There's a bunch of Harry Potter actors in that one. I was expecting Rose's mom to be played by Maggie Smith. She had the same frown that Professor McGonagall has for most of that series. Oh, yeah. Very icy. Yeah. She, she's kind of scary. So another basic thing I didn't know that I now realize is like a famous thing with Titanic is the captain must go down with his ship. And so I was kind of exasperated and bewildered that the captain was just kind of standing there as the chaos was going around like powerless i was like do something more you got to be the hero but no it's the the captain's got to go down with the ship yeah it is interesting to think about i guess you're right that he could have done more and still gone down with the ship instead of just standing there right or something i don't know i thought the two actors who played the captains looked really similar yeah in both of these movies, they do a good job of casting people who look like the people. I think in Titanic 97 especially, but in both movies, they got a good captain. Another just kind of random thought on this movie. Did you know that this is Criterion Spine number seven? This was the seventh Criterion movie. Wow. I did not know that. I don't know. I would think like the first 15 would be like historical, undisputable, well-renowned masterpieces. And sure enough, if you look at them, it's like, yeah, like Breathless by Jean-Luc Godard or whatever. But then all of a sudden there's the Night to Remember, Criterion Spine number seven. So I actually didn't know they were numbered. What does that mean? That's the order in which they're released. It's like your ID number for for where you rank in the collection. Kind of think of it as like a, your Pokemon number. It's like once you're in the collection... That is the number that is associated with your movie within Criterion. Okay. Interesting. And so when they're at something like 1,500 now or 1,100. I don't remember exactly what it is, but they're in the four digits, the low four digits. But in the spirit of the Criterion collection, uh, another Criterion inductee is 1998's Armageddon. We talked about last week 1998's Roland Emmerich-directed adaptation of Godzilla. And we are now in similar territory with another 90s blockbuster, which was hugely advertised, merchandised. It had a hit single on the radio. This is James Cameron's 1997 adaptation. So James Cameron, I get James Cameron and Peter Jackson confused a lot. So they're both directors that have two first names. They're both were famous for making well-regarded, sometimes low-budget horror and thriller movies that then, because of their ability to do that, got a huge check to make big, bombastic movies around the turn of 2000. And both of those were huge hits. And now they basically are like 
movie royalty who can kind of work on whatever project they want to work on. And I just get them confused in, in my head. So James Cameron was Terminator 2, Aliens, and then Titanic and now the Avatars. Peter Jackson was Dead Alive, a couple others, and then he made Lord of the Rings, then The Lovely Bones. And I, I don't know what he's doing these days, but I see those names and my wires get crossed in my head. You just got to hear Peter Jackson with a New Zealand accent in your head. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. But yeah, they definitely have career parallels. So T-97, as we've been calling it, was the most expensive film project to date at that point. It was inspired by Cameron's fascination with undersea exploration. He's got some real bona fides when it comes to exploring the ocean. This may have been a part of his life for a long time, uh, but it was really boosted when he worked on his film The Abyss in 1989, which I haven't seen, but I think it's about like an alien on the ocean floor or something, some weird CGI creature that's down there. And he just got really into the theory and practice of underwater exploration. So it was very important to him that, for instance, they do the opening shot at the real Titanic wreck. They were on a real research ship called the Keldish, and that's what the frame story ship is called in the movie. And, like, apart from the treasure hunter guy, a lot of the rest of the crew of the ship is really the crew of the ship, and they're, like, Icelandic researchers and stuff. Well, that's really interesting. So... We obviously spent a lot of time in that footage in the, the opening half hour of the movie. But there's like when they go and see the safe and some of the specific room stuff, I feel like at least some of that needed to be like, like they weren't actually discovering the safe in this moment. Like, Do you know how he did that? I was wondering that this time too. I'm sure there were sets that they made. Like there's a shot where it's going, they, they have a little submersible that they're exploring the Titanic wreck in because this movie opens in the present of 1997 and there's a treasure hunter who has brought a crew to the wreck. So they're scouring around in this little submersible looking for something. And there's a shot where it drives past a piano and just something about the way it's shot. It looked too cool and just artfully constructed to have actually just been sitting down there and there a similar shot of like a chandelier and i just didn't think that it would necessarily be looking like that it's ruined so it's not that it's too pristine but just that they would have such good access to see these things raised the thought in my mind that some of this is almost certainly yeah recreated and staged that piano moment was like the first of many like hairs went up on the back of my neck like this this movie is uh it's, it's tugging you right in because you're right it's a very evocative symbol of like this i don't know how this fancy ornate bit of grandiosity would crumble down at the ocean like it reinforces those themes fully and there's a quote from james cameron about how it wasn't particularly that i wanted to make the movie i wanted to dive to the shipwreck 
So from the beginning, you can tell this is his passion project. And actually, in more recent years, he took a solo expedition to the bottom of the Challenger Deep in the Marianas Trench. So he's actually been to the deepest point in the ocean by himself, like seven miles deep. He is not a charlatan when it comes to his enthusiasm for exploring the sea. That's pretty wild. So I have a question for you on this footage and really this whole kind of research expedition. Do you think this movie is better off by having it? Or would the movie have been better to basically cut the entire framing story? Hmm. Tough to say. Because we, well, we haven't described this too much as a little bit of a frame of reference. We do have a frame story, as Dan said. We've got a treasure hunter character leading a crew. And the name of the character is Brock Lovett. And this guy really strikes me as like a Clive Cussler protagonist. He's very much a middle-aged white guy fantasy of this guy who scours the world for treasure and can book a fancy ship and all these knowledgeable tech nerds to help him out. He's like Nick Cage in National Treasure or something. I can see that, yeah. So he just really seems like a 90s type figure that would be in a pulp paperback. If not by Clive Cussler, then maybe Dean Koontz. Uh, Not quite Tom Clancy, because it doesn't get into the nitty-gritty of, like, military or international details. But that vein of, like, a book that a 45-year-old dude would buy at the airport. So it, it really feels like this sequence dates it more than if it were just strictly an adaptation of the Titanic story that took place in 1912. But what were your thoughts about this sequence? Mixed. So A Night to Remember is a few minutes under two hours long, if I'm not mistaken, or maybe a few minutes over two hours long. can't remember. Titanic is three hours and something like eight minutes or something like 20 minutes, if you include all the credits. And that is a long-ass movie. And, you know, I feel like a movie's really got to earn a length like that. And so... I was prepared to nitpick. I will say that there are moments of it that I certainly could have done without. And I had some mixed thoughts on older Rose being there too, because it kind of, maybe not spoils, but like, I mean, you know, she survives basically. So, you know, there's ups and upsides and downsides of having that as a known thing to the audience, because you're never really scared that she's actually going to die. And I feel like the movie doesn't really fall into that pitfall, but I was afraid it was going to. But the one segment that really bothered me is they show like a computer animation of how exactly the Titanic sunk. I mean, in my head, I was like, okay, this is what I'm going to see in an hour and a half. So I saw A Night to Remember first, so I kind of knew specifically what the mechanics were. But I can see if I had watched T-97 first, I think I would have been annoyed by that because it showed you exactly what you were going to see in practical effects with the assistance of CGI over the next few hours. So I don't know. No, I guess I agree that they didn't necessarily need that little CGI summary of what was going to happen and that that might take a little of the oomph about it. But I mean, even that serves as a moment to show like the callousness of the modern people who are describing it to an actual Titanic survivor 
and just being very blasé about it that they're describing this traumatic thing and not really respecting that that was her lived experience you know at a certain point a disaster becomes history and it's just a fact that a school kid learns and it loses the emotional potency and so then after we see that we're now going to have the emotion injected back in i can buy that i didn't think about it from that angle but you're definitely right that that is kind of a theme of the film. And I guess that does reinforce that theme. Because at the end of the movie, the treasure hunter is like, I never understood the Titanic before today, and now I do, or something like that. Right. And I, I think the function of the frame story, whether or not it's needed, is to, I guess, give the people in the 90s a reason to care and connect to something that happened so long ago. It's like, the ship's still out there. Like, it's really there, and you can see it, and you can think about it. But then also, you know, they manufactured this character who was a survivor who's still alive. Which, I don't know if there actually were any by 1997. But they do have centenarian Rose come aboard the ship. Because what the treasure hunter is looking for is a diamond that he believes was taken aboard the ship... And lost in the sinking. And as he looks around in this little submersible, he does not find the diamond, but he finds a sketch of a nude woman wearing the diamond. Then this centenarian lady comes aboard the ship, claiming to be the woman in the drawing. And so she knows about the diamond, and the treasure hunter knows about the diamond, and apparently this was not common knowledge. And so it lends credence to old Rose here, played by Gloria Stewart, actually being who she claims to be. And this offers the window into her telling the story that takes place in 1912. Right. This sketch is pivotal, both in the framing story, of course, and in the emotional arc of the characters as well. And I was skimming the Wikipedia article and I saw that James Cameron himself, I don't know if he, he probably didn't do the one that was in it, the movie, but he basically did the initial sketch and had the exact vision of what it would look like. And at first I was like, oh, that's really cool. He had like a really precise thought of what it should be. And then I followed that train of thought a little bit more. And I was like, so this whole time he was thinking of Kate Winslet naked or perhaps looking at her somewhere naked. Okay. Yeah. That is a little weird to think about from that angle. Yeah, it's getting into the territory of, in some kind of wonderful, the all the focus placed on the drawing of Leah Thompson. Right. And how, what we subsequently found, I think we commented on, is that the director actually did end up marrying Leah Thompson. So, <laughs> not the case with James Cameron and Kate Winslet, but... So Rose tells the story of when she was a 17-year-old on the maiden voyage of the Titanic, and she was reluctantly betrothed to Cal Hockley, a steel fortune heir, played by Billy Zane. And it's clear that she's reluctant in this arrangement, but they're doing it because it will ensure her family's financial security which her mother keeps harping on. Going back to Some Kind of Wonderful, we talked in that movie 
about how that had that movie had a just phenomenal D-bag boyfriend that you just love to hate. And Billy Zane very much fills that role here. And if you'll recall, eagle-eared listeners, I said that at the point. Yes. In that episode. I said, oh, we got to talk Cal Hockley at some point. Uh, you mentioned Rob Lowe a moment ago. In my research, it said Rob Lowe auditioned for this part. <laughs> Not that he was being considered, just that he auditioned. And I really kind of want to see the world where Rob Lowe plays Cal Hockley. I think he could have pulled it off. He's He easily can play a douchebag. I don't know if I've seen him play one, but... Yeah, I want to talk more. There's a lot of what-ifs on the casting that I have some thoughts on. Yeah, I can picture it. I could picture him being a scumbag. Yeah, doing the slap across her face at one point. But Rose is clearly unhappy with this arrangement. And after the ship sets out to sea, the first night, she heads to the stern of the boat to jump off and commit suicide. But she is stopped by... Jack Dawson, who is Leo DiCaprio in what would become his breakout role. He'd done a few movies where he was the lead before this, but this was really what put him on the map. And so Jack is a poor artist who is just kind of a drifter and travels from place to place and actually won his tickets on the ship in a poker game. So he just barely made it on the ship at the last possible moment because he scooped up the tickets off the card table and ran up the gangplank like as they were taking it away. So he gets on at the very last possible moment and as we'll see, he also is going to get off at the very last possible moment. There's a real giddiness to the first 10 minutes once we go back in time. Just the bright sun of the Titanic taking off. James Cameron, not enough can be said for the production values of this. I mean, I really think if it's not the greatest production values of any film ever, it's right up there. You just, I mean, The Night to Remember did a pretty good job of this, but T-97 absolutely nails. You can feel how big and grand the boat is. And the thrill of being a part of this huge thing as he, this this huge journey, as he hops in the last minute onto the, the boat with his buddy. It's really breathtaking. Everything that you see just sweeps you away. Billy Zane, in his first appearance, has a line, You can be blasé about some things, Rose, but not about Titanic. (laughs) And that's the way I feel about this movie. Like, even people who write it off as just a bloated entry in this slate of 90s blockbusters as something like a soulless corporate product... You know, they might mock the song that was everywhere, but I feel like those people haven't sat down and watched the movie. Like, it is really captivating. It is really a production with a love and a creative passion firing behind it. I completely agree. And I could see maybe being a little skeptical at the time. Like, oh, well, it's just because he had access to the best technology and the best budget. But... If that were true, then we would be seeing Titanics every year, you know, like the technology and the budgets have gotten bigger and better since then. Nothing feels the way this movie feels in terms of scope and I don't know, just drama, I guess, 
that it sucks you into it. A big part of it too, I think, is the score by James Horner. The music that is present throughout this is really evocative. I wasn't completely bowled over by how good it was. Like there was times where I thought it felt like a little repetitive. Mm-hmm. Some moments really did take you away though. Like there, there were definitely some moments where that score sweeps you away and it wasn't quite as overbearing as I feared it was going to be. Sure. Although the, the really magical musical moment is the jump of the gun here, but the montage as the, we have again, this beat of the band playing one last song as the ship is sinking and it just cuts away to everything crumbling, dishes falling out, people screaming and trying to survive. And with this, uh, I don't know if that was near my God to thee that was playing at that moment, but some classical tune. And I was just breathless as this was happening. I was, I was completely enraptured. Yeah. You're right that there's like two main Horner melodies that repeat throughout. And the big one, of course, my heart will go on. You hear a lot in slightly different versions, uh, but you gotta love that tin whistle. This movie is probably the most prestigious featuring of tin whistles in cinematic history. The high-pitched, shrill whistle that's always accompanying just scenes of the night and... So that's the instrument that opens My Heart Will Go On. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. There it is. The, yeah, the lead-in. So not the not the main melody, but the lead-in, that part. That's the tin whistle. Or the, the fee-dog. At least that's how it's spelled. F-E-A-D-O-G. Which, being Irish, is probably pronounced completely differently. Yeah. But... <laughs> No, that that you're right. If that that is iconic, I'm definitely with you on that. But then the other melody that I quite like, uh, it kind of the B side of the Titanic record, is called Southampton, and it's what plays when the ship is going to sea for the first time, and it's the one where they use the MIDI chorus, like the keyboard choral sound effect, the ah 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 uh, 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 uh. Oh yeah, yeah. And I've always wondered if they like meant to put in an actual chorus later, <laughs> and just somebody didn't realize. Like the composer sent them that tape, and they just missed the note. Actually, record singers. One thing. So Rose is a fictional character, and you know the movie's mostly from her perspective, but it's not at all like really religious about everything that we see is something that she would have known. Like it's kind of, it is a sprawling panorama of all these people on the boat, but there are a lot of things from her perspective. And I thought it was funny how she always happened to be kind of right there as some important detail happened. So she would have known specifically what it was when she was recounting it later. Where, oh, she just happened to be there when the architect was saying this thing. She just happened to be there when the iceberg hit and stuff. Right. They use Jack and Rose's love story as an emotional through line for the movie. And yes, as part of this, they managed to get them at pretty much every single part of the ship at some point. Of course, they got to be wherever a pivotal event is taking place. But also they use it as like a means of just showing us everything that's there. That's true. Yeah. So they have this scene at the stern where Rose is jumping off and Jack saves her. And that's where they meet 
because he saved her, Cal invites Jack to dinner. And so, of course, we get the first-class dining room, and we get this class disparity. But later on, of course, I think if you're aware of this movie at all, you know the scene where they're together at the bow of the ship, and he's got her arms out, so it's like they're flying. It's like a whole new world moment of poor Aladdin wooing the rich princess. Obviously, that's at the front of the ship. And there's a moment where they sneak away and they're like talking together in this little gymnasium room that you don't see at any other point in the movie. And it's like they built this whole room based on somebody's blueprint. And now they're just showing it for a couple seconds here. Uh, But at one point, Cal Hockley's bodyguard, his manservant, is chasing them around. And they kind of giddily run off through the bowels of the ship and they end up in the engine room and they even end up in the boiler room where like (laughs) all the burly men are shoveling coal so there really is no part of this ship that they miss out on and so by extension because we're following them we see just about everything yeah it made me laugh when we we got down there the a night to remember spends a lot of time in the actual operation of the ship, like pouring in the coal, trying to pump out the water, all these things. We only get a couple glimpses of it in T-97, but I did love that moment when they ran through and the good use of color. You just really feel the heat. In general, this movie does great by color. You know, obviously I love me a good black and white photography, but Cameron doesn't skimp on using all of the shades to make you feel different things horror when it's the dark dark blue and closing in on you you have the bright skies you have the gleaming gold and white and black of the ship you have the red fiery red of the the room where they're shoveling all the the coal etc i I like that and also this moment where they're running through the fiery bowels of the ship is coming up close on the halfway point of the movie so they either have sex right after the that part or right before. I think it's right after. Like, they run off and they hide in a fancy car. This is, of course, after the scene where um, he sketches the drawing of her. So the love story in general, it moves very fast. Like, there were a couple of points where their relationship accelerated, and I was like, I was expecting a little more build-up to that, but I guess it just happened, like... They have the one night out where they're kind of dancing together. And then the next day he's talking about how he's never met anyone like her and just wants to be with her. Then it's that evening and they're completely head over heels with each other. You do feel it. But when I was like thinking through the timeline, I was a little skeptical. I don't know. I guess passion comes, comes at you fast. Yeah, I suppose. So I think there's a couple factors behind it. Like, She's unhappy where she's at, and this is potentially a way out. Plus, I think there's the element of being on a cruise ship. I think a cruise ship romance is just dime novel fodder dating way back. Something that would come up in a beach read or something is that you find a captivating stranger on a cruise ship and have a whirlwind romance. Yeah, I can buy that. I remember when I would go to camps... 
in high school and middle school, obviously I, I never had passionate romantic affairs, but there was something really magical about people pulled together, sharing for a shortened period of time, a very tight knit experience that really brings you together really fast and leaves a really strong impression. But then, of course, this is a Titanic movie, so suddenly the ship hits an iceberg. And, like, honestly, by this point, I have almost forgotten. Every time I watch the movie, it surprises me. You know, we had this, we had a good story going, and then suddenly the movie abruptly shifts genres halfway, Parasite style, from this romance to suddenly now it's a disaster movie. Yeah. It structurally works, though. I mean, basically, I mean, the second half of Titanic is almost a remake of A Night to Remember in some ways. We have some added stuff in there, but there's just so much that's just a repetition of what A Night to Remember already did pretty well. But I think the reason that there are moments in T97 that have a real impact is because of exactly what you just said, how the movie has really went all in on this melodramatic romance the sweeping passion. And I think there's probably mixed feelings among people who've seen this movie about, do you get as swept away in the romance as they do? Like, do you really buy it? Do you really believe it? Do you care about these characters and whether they end up together? I did. I, I did buy it. And I think it makes the disaster stuff more impactful because you get more of those personal heart tugging stakes. I agree. Something about A Night to Remember is there's a lot of jumping around to the point that it feels kind of disconnected and you never really have that bond with one character. But now the ship is going down and so, as Dan just said, it's like A Night to Remember and everybody is going to end up on a path to either surviving or perishing. And we get a lot of the same scenes, really. Andrews does the calculation and literally says, it is a mathematical certainty. And we get the scenes of the people in the different classes, like the third class passengers being caught behind the gate. Although in this movie, they actually do something about it. They rip a bench out of the floor and ram it through the gate. I assume Cameron was had watched this movie and really deconstructed it about what things he liked from it because he borrowed so many things from it. There's the dramatic gunfire to restore order. There's the one exchange that you already mentioned where some character is like, please tell me the truth to the architect and admit the architect admits that it's it's going to sink. There's the use of one of those emergency axes there's a woman who nearly falls off the boat, the the, the rescue ship, and they're, they're desperately trying to get her on there. There's the exasperated captain going into his quarters as the, the ocean comes in around him. Just uh, they play with the ice after the iceberg hits, like the, the steerage people have a game of soccer. They're kicking the ice around. Um, there's use of like one abandoned kid for emotional impact and used differently, but just this motif of people noticing the one abandoned kid who needs assistance. I kept trying to, to make notes of him, and I, it was overwhelming. There was too many things that were similar. They reuse even lines. I'm prepared to go down like a gentleman, happens in both of them. 
Yeah, and Molly Brown yelling to go take the boat back. There's lots of things. Yeah. E- even the band saying, oh, why are we still playing? No one's listening. Well, they don't listen to us at dinner either. Right. And yeah, there is all kinds of stuff happening. We could dissect it. There's a drawn-out plot where obviously Cal is finally starting to catch on that Rose and Jack are messing around. And obviously is pissed about that. Wants to get Jack off his plate. So he, like, concocts a scheme that he's going to frame Jack for trying to steal the diamond. And Jack actually gets chained up down on one of the lower decks of the ship. So now we, in addition to everything else we've seen, now we see, like, the ship's brig. But this is, like, the one thing that I would say is probably not necessary. It just feels kind of silly that Cal and his manservant are chasing them around while the ship is sinking. It's like, come on, guys, there's other things to focus on right now. And you're, like, literally firing guns at each other. Yeah, there is a little much of that. The manservant, the conniving manservant, I, I actually enjoyed him. He was a good, he adds dramatic heft and like danger for Jack and Rose. So the the character that Billy Zane plays is, I, I actually liked him the way that they wrote him because he's not a sadist, but he does have like a total disregard for anyone who isn't upper crust. And I mean, he's obviously terrible to Rose, but if your fiance is canoodling with someone else, that would make the blood boil. Yeah, I would be pissed. I think they did the right amount of making him just an a-hole, but also like, okay, like he's not acting outside of reasonable human behavior in terms of his anger. And when he like snaps when he sees them and starts firing at them, that was maybe the bridge too far, but like I actually kind of believed the impulse. Right, and there's a scene early on when he gives her the diamond and he says, open your heart to me, Rose. And it's like, that's that's the moment when they tried to, like, depict him at his most charming. Right. So all he wants is just a conservative, traditional, restrained, proper woman who will do whatever he says and not care whatever he does. The one thing I thought they were going to do at some point that is kind of a staple of D-bag boyfriends, but they didn't do. They didn't show him messing around with the waitress or whatever, you know, and nothing like that. Yeah, true. What's the name of the guy in Some Kind of Wonderful? Uh, I'm going to have to look it up. Is it Halsley or something? Something with an H. I don't know. But yeah, definitely we get some skeevy stuff with other women in that one. And and Cal doesn't do that. Hardy Jens. Hardy Jens. There we go. The ship ultimately goes down. Rose is offered a spot on a lifeboat. She actually... She, like, gets out of two different lifeboats because there's the one that she's going to get on with her mom and she gets talked out of that. The The mother says something uh, like, oh, will the lifeboats be seated by class? And Rose is, like, so disgusted by that she doesn't get in there. And then later on, Cal says something like, oh, I have a deal with the guy who is letting men on boats. And so Jack and I will go and get on a boat over there. So Rose is going to get on a boat at that point, but then she still doesn't do that. That's a good point. Yeah, that that moment was repeated. But she is going to stick it out to the bitter end with Jack now. Cal does get on a boat because he scoops up an abandoned child. 
And, like, this is another moment that you can kind of read him two ways. It's like, yes, that's a really skeevy thing to do to save your own skin, but he's also saving a child. Like, that child is going to survive now. I spent a few minutes trying to figure out what happens to this kid, because I'm pretty sure we don't see him in, like, the postscript when they're they're all back on the other boat, all the survivors are on the other boat. It made me wonder what was going to happen to this guy. I could see like a sequel to this movie that's the redemption arc for Billy Zane when he learns to care for this this orphan that he he saved and is now responsible for or something like that. Yeah. I am convinced that the Boz Lerman Great Gatsby is a sequel to this movie that Jack uh, Jack actually made it out okay and uh <laughs> he managed to strike it rich and he he's new money in the 1920s. <laughs> that's funny. But uh, the events depicted are that Jack and Rose cling to the stern as the ship sinks down. And if you look closely, the baker is there also clinging to the stern and swigging away on his hip flask. So they're the last people off the boat and they're splashing around in the water. And they manage to find a door or like a piece of a wall floating, a wooden panel. And it looks pretty sizable, but I guess the idea is that it's only buoyant enough to hold one person up out of the water. They can't both climb onto it. Yeah, there's a little struggle where they both try to get on, but it's like flipping over and sinking as they try to get on. So they settle on Rose being up there and Jack hanging on. But Brian, sorry, you skipped over the most important plot point. And this is when a dude jumps and hits the propeller and spins down and splashes on the water. And as soon as I saw it, I was like, I know that this dude is an icon. I'm going to go like see what people have to say about Propeller Guy. Okay, well, to be fair, I did mention him in contrast during our discussion of Night to Remember. Oh, gotcha. I said Night to Remember has many fewer falls. Nobody <laughs> falls hundreds of feet and hits a propeller. Yeah. So he was not left out. I stand Propeller Man. I apologize for the accus the accusation, but mostly I just wanted to talk about Propeller Guy, so that was my transition there. But Propeller Guy, man, what a great use of seven seconds of a movie that I'm just going to be thinking about for the rest of my life. And I, I looked it up, and there is fan art of Propeller Guy. I might make it the background on the desktop on my computer. <laughs> it would be good if you had a like a vertical monitor. Yeah. And there is a YouTube clip of just those seven seconds of the guy falling and hitting it and spinning around. Wow. So Rose manages to stay alive atop this door, but Jack, splashing around in the water, does not. He freezes. But luckily, Rose is able to pilfer a whistle off the frozen corpse of an officer from the ship and is able to whistle and draw the attention of the one lifeboat that did come back and she gets scooped up. And she's brought aboard the Carpathia, where she's with the other survivors. And at this point, we jump back to the frame story. This is something that, like, if you had really been drawn in, you may have even forgotten that there was a frame story. Apparently, they initially were going to do more in the end of the frame story, but kind of realized that at that point, people probably didn't care all that much about it at that, you know. Right. So what's in the movie is we get a conversation that the treasure hunter is just really struck by the emotional weight 
of the Titanic disaster, that he'd never really felt a personal connection to it before. He'd just seen it as a way to make money. And so now I guess he's going to swear off his treasure hunting, at least at the Titanic, Rick. Because it's too soon, I guess. (laughs) Uh, And he just kind of staggers away, throws away his celebratory cigar, and clucks his tongue and walks away. Then old Rose takes the diamond out of her pocket. Apparently she's had it the entire time and just never told anybody, never sold it because she didn't want to live off of Cal's money, I guess. But she throws it overboard to join the rest of the wreck. And then she goes back to her quarters and goes to sleep. We get a sequence, like a dream sequence, where she's joining Jack and everybody who died on the Titanic back on the grand staircase of the ship. And so my question for you, Dan, is, in your opinion, did Rose die here in this moment? It's ambiguous, but I don't know. It's kind of contrived from a plot angle if it did happen, but that is really the messaging we get there. It's certainly a little ambiguous. It could be just her lost in her memories and imagining it as she kind of, it's like a cap or a closure at last on it. But I don't know. I certainly see how you could read it that way. What do you think? So my brother and I always have a discussion at the end of the movie, every time we watch it. And I don't know why, because we are in total agreement that we both don't think she necessarily died. Like, our preferred interpretation is that it's just a dream. Because, well, my brother says it would be bold to die on this dude's ship when you didn't even help him find the diamond. In fact, you actively counteracted his efforts. (laughs) You made it harder for him to find the diamond when you could have just given it to him if you didn't want it. And (laughs) now you're dead on his boat. And you happen to die, like, right above the wreckage of the Titanic. And, you know... Why that moment all of a sudden? I don't know. Right. The Wikipedia article says Kate Winslet is of the opinion that Rose does die there, but James Cameron is not. So I think we I think we got to go with director intent here and, and say it's at least ambiguous. I say movies belong to their viewers and uh, you could interpret it either way. Interesting to note, though, that there is a whole alternate ending that's actually shot and on the dvd i think that originally rose was going to like show the treasure hunter that she had the diamond but that i guess it doesn't make you happy or something and then she was just gonna throw it over like in front of him which is really strange to me I don't think this ending would have worked at all. Like, I guess he still finds the the personal connection. And it's like, material things don't matter. But that just wouldn't work at all. I, I'm glad they scrapped that ending. I agree. It would have been a little too much of a contrivance. And like, oh, you buy that. Listening to an old woman ramble for a couple hours, you've completely altered your life trajectory that you've been working on and clearly investing a lot of money in. To find this multi-million dollar diamond and then you just completely give that up. I, I don't think I would have bought that. Another thing I wanted to talk about that I realized in this viewing 
and we'll we'll dive here quickly into our um good things and bad things but i think jack dawson can be seen as a manic pixie dream boy interesting so the manic pixie dream girl archetype if you read the tv tropes article is essentially a freewheeling adventurous spirited girl who teaches a kind of uptight gloomy guy how to love and like how to find the joie de vivre and i think jack dawson definitely does this because in her quarters at the end we see rose has all these pictures of this adventurous life that she's lived uh, after she's been inspired by jack to cast off the strictures of her upper class life i like that moment that i got chills there but no i i, I can see that reading i certainly think that Jack is like a much more straightforward character who really doesn't have an arc. And he, yeah, he basically serves Rose's arc more than anything. I, I could buy, buy that as a, if not a criticism, a uh, categorization of the way his character is written. Indeed. We've got about 20 more minutes here before I got to go out the door. So let's slap some good things and not so good things and some ratings on this. Sounds good. So what were some good things that you liked if we step back a moment to A Night to Remember, Dan? Um, I think I've hit most of the things that I really liked. Really impressive production values. Really liked the way that it depicted the operation of the ship in fastidious detail. And it's just a very well-crafted film. Like, all of the nuts and bolts of making a movie, of having good acting, having everything being well shot, editing that pulls you like at a comfortable pace, but you're able to kind of be engaged in the moment and, and react to things with the editing. Just It's just a good movie. And I can see why some people prefer it. I can see it being a taste where you think that this is the best Titanic movie. If you prefer the telling of this to be kind of a more by the books uh, disaster tale as opposed to a uh, heated, passionate blockbuster. I thought it accomplished a lot in its two-hour runtime. We see a lot of people's stories in this movie. And I mentioned it before, but it really is a very impressive undertaking physically. I was not expecting to see so much of the ship sinking. I'd like to see some of the behind the scenes of how they created all of this just the mechanics of the sequence yeah i i agree really impressive production values especially for the time and i thought i read somewhere that it wasn't the highest budgeted movie either which makes it all the more impressive that they were able to really capture this sense of scope and this sense of physical destruction oh something we didn't mention in either version which i'm kicking myself about is a character that pops up in many Titanic adaptations is Bruce Ismay, the highest ranking executive of the White Star Line, the company that owns and operates the ship. And this guy has a big, like, snidely whiplash mustache, and he's painted as a villain in both because he got himself a spot on a lifeboat. Mm, yeah. And so both movies have a shot of Ismay, like, sitting kind of hunched down in the lifeboat like looking around shiftily as the ship has got its end up in the air and is going down behind him in the background uh something i liked about a night to remember that i haven't said yet 
we get a couple spooky shots of a rocking horse and it's just like sitting in a playroom and right before everything goes to hell we get a shot of the rocking horse sitting unnervingly still Mm. and then later on you see it floating in the wreckage and i don't know it was just very creepy but also that image of like Something you're used to seeing in motion, sitting very still the moment before a disaster, is super evocative and poignant. I like that, yeah. What about some things that were not so good? Um, So for some not so good things, just one more time, the Britishness of it all, really, with everybody saying, I say, good sir, quite, all the time. It was a peculiar juxtaposition for what I was expecting. I just felt that overall there was a little less heart in this movie and maybe that just means i wasn't being as manipulated as in 97 Uh, i was just being given the facts of what really happened and and no syrupy romance but i just felt less connected to the characters because we're jumping around so much it ends up feeling scattered especially the focus on the radio operators seemed like excessively dedicated to the maritime details like gotta gotta have the updated log gotta be thorough in our record keeping and it it felt distanced to what the passengers were going through yeah i i I buy that i mean i actually did kind of like it it was it's very different it's it is just compelling to see how these things kind of operate at what we understand eventually to be a horribly climactic and dramatic events and just kind of seeing it happen is kind of cool that's true uh, in all the details but i think if you were to reframe my it's too british and hoity-toity complaint it doesn't have enough heart to to really pull on the heartstrings i think is a good way of putting that yeah but now let's dissect the 97 film a little bit good things dan what do you got you just can't describe how impressive the production values are, especially the second half of the movie, where you see everything that you would ever want to see in a sinking ship movie. You see the people struggling to survive, all the haunting image of all the frozen dead bodies floating, the water crashing everywhere, the things tearing apart. Just, it, it's a phenomenal bit of cinema. And... I think even the the first half, though, the uh, the amount of detail to the the sets and the costumes and the, the period details of it all really visually blow you away. Just kind of so so decadent and and fun. And there I think the movie's really well directed. Like there's really stuff that sweeps you away. So many little moments, the spinning camera when they're dancing reflecting these characters being swept away by their love, the intimacy between Jack and Rose as like palpable chemistry. It's good. It brings a lot just like in cinema as a piece of big entertainment, I guess. Just really pulling out all the stops. I'm glad you mentioned the spinning during the party because I always like to imagine the camera person spinning around with Leonardo DiCaprio and then spinning around with (laughs) Kate Winslet and what that would have looked like from an outside perspective. But yeah, 
I love a lot of stuff about this movie. The score, the scope, the stunts, the stars. They built a full-size Titanic out in Mexico to sit there for the dock scenes and sizable models of it for a bunch of other scenes. It's crazy. You know, with hydraulic lifts. They had like a 7 million gallon tank with like zero horizon edges to be their ocean. And there's some really interesting shots of like James Cameron slogging around, you know, where it's like up to his knees, but all the other actors are, they're like crouched down to their shoulders. So they're like floating around. Just really interesting to read about how it was made and think about everything that went into it. And of course you got some early CGI, which works for the most part to show the ship at full steam. If you look closely at some of the wide shots, there's like kind of uncanny valley digital people walking around like polar express territory but overall it looks good and the effects have held up agreed and we get some good performances i mean kate winslet carries the movie we get the breakout of leo i want to give props to 87 year old gloria stewart i think she's a good storyteller yeah she holds her own so I'm with you on Leo. I think Leo is perfect. And I think if you look at the other people they considered, Jared Leto kind of would be fascinating, but he wouldn't have the same boyish charm. He'd be a little bit more intense, I think. But Kate Winslet for me, is it's not a miss, but it's not an out-of-the-park home run. Okay, you'd like to see somebody else. Uh, not necessarily. I, she actually grew on me as the movie went. I think the second half of the movie, she's good. But when she's more about like the internal struggle it felt a little less like she was trying, but not quite there in terms of capturing a fully formed character, I guess. The one, there's a lot of interesting potential castings. The one that caught my eye is Winona Ryder. Man, would she have been awesome. Uh, Claire Danes would have had like the same doe eye effect that Kate Winslet has. I don't know if she would have been able to do all the same things that Kate Winslet does in terms of like, really making you buy the the passion and the danger later in the movie, but maybe she would have. Uh, and interestingly, Leo would be paired with Claire Danes, I think shortly afterwards in Romeo and Juliet. But I love Winona Ryder. I love everything that I've seen her in. I'm trying to imagine her. I think she would have had a much more of a strong character if she had been the one who had cast. I think she would have left more of an impression as a character. I can't speak to the chemistry because you can't deny that the chemistry between Kate and Leo is spot on perfect. That's the one thing that I will say for Kate Winslet, her being the perfect casting is that chemistry was just spot on. Perhaps better chemistry than the last Kate and Leo we considered. <laughs> I would say so. That's Kate and Leopold for those of us who don't have the, the eagle ears, uh, the photographic memory of the goods is history. Something I want to point out that I have more appreciation for every time I rewatch it is that James Cameron did a really, really good job giving significant business to every featured actor in this huge cast. If somebody gets introduced, they're going to do something later on. There's no character who's like an unused Chekhov's gun. Because we have, like, Tommy, the Irish friend, who ends up getting shot by Officer Murdoch when he freaks out at the end. And we have Fabrizio, the Italian friend, who 
is there for the I'm king of the world scene where Jack, you know, hits on the idea that, oh, it's kind of cool to hang out at the bow of the ship. I should do this with a girl next time. And then at the end, Fabrizio gets crushed by a smokestack. It's like people that you're introduced to keep popping up. That's why I think the movie's reputation for bloat. I mean, it's too long. It, it doesn't need to be as long as it is. But I honestly, it's, it doesn't operate with economy, but it does operate with precision. It's just a big story with a big cast. And it puts in there everything that should be there and doesn't really have that much extraneous. I mean, there are perhaps some subplots that could have been shortened or cut out. But every scene is there for a reason from the either the emotional arc or just the impact to the viewer. And every time I watch it, I notice somebody new of these characters that pop up throughout. Especially there's like a father with a young daughter who are there on the dock at the start and they have an exchange where the dad says, isn't that a big boat? And the little girl says, daddy, that's a ship. And the guy says, you're right. And the two of them pop up at important scenes throughout. Then at the very end, when we get the shot of everybody who died reuniting on the staircase, the way they blocked everybody out in the space, people catch your eye from the corners of, oh yeah, I remember what that person did. And maybe you don't get as much of that on the first watch, but on like, I think this was like the sixth time I've watched it. I, I just appreciate it more. That's cool, yeah. Well, let's talk quickly about some not-so-good things about uh, Titanic 97, and then we can get to our ratings. I do think the movie is flawed in that there's just so much of it that, I don't know. I know I kind of just went on the record saying I feel like it's not unnecessarily bloated, but it really is really long. And I do think it's almost exhausting at that point. And I still think you... Like, I want to see a version of this movie that's just the period piece with none of the framing story, because that's really the stuff that impacts you. I think it's possible that would have been a better movie, although it is cool to get a lot of the stuff that's in the framing story, like seeing the actual Titanic and stuff. And I thought the acting was overall quite good. But as mentioned, I thought Kate Winslet was a little bit wobbly in the first half. And I don't even know what to make of Billy Zane. He, he leans into his character, but... There were some moments where I I was maybe not blown away by the acting, but honestly, it's pretty good overall. There's nothing that really sucks the movie down, I guess. Nothing sinks the movie for you. There you go, yeah. For me, the big weakness is the dialogue is a little clunky at times. Specifically, they say each other's names a whole lot. (laughs) There's like a supercut of every time... Jack says Rose and Rose says Jack and it's many, many times. There's one moment when he's like pulling her along by her arm and she says, Jack, stop Jack. No, Jack, I couldn't possibly Jack. (laughs) It's like, that's too many times. You, You don't need to say it that many times. But overall, I think the story is told well. I wonder maybe what if Cameron had just directed the movie rather than written it too. Or even if he just had someone punch up the dialogue a little bit, it may have just given it that little bit extra. I can see that, yeah. Parts of the dialogue are not the most elegant writing, I completely agree. I also think that Brock Lovett's about face at the end is a little hard to believe. 
but as I said, superior to the first ending they filmed. Right. So are you ready, perhaps, to give these movies a rating here on April 15th? Yep, I have my ratings written down. I assume you have have yours selected. I've got my seal envelope. Oh, which, by the way, uh, something we didn't say, Titanic 1997 won 11 Oscars, still tied for the most taken home in an evening, tied with Ben-Hur and Return of the King, the third Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings movie. Yeah, it won everything. All right, so A Night to Remember. I really enjoyed it. It won't sweep you away to the same effect, but it will really make you get a sense of the scope of the disaster and how it could have happened, and you get you get the drama of it. And I think it's just a really real, well-crafted movie that I would definitely watch again. Loved a lot of the things it did, the way we re- repeatedly visited places, and that really gave you a, a sense and a feeling of this thing going to hell. So I'm going to give it a six out of eight. I'm going to give it a very good. Okay. What about you? I can totally defend rating it with a six, partly because I've thrown out a lot of sixes lately. And I think partly just because I'm so used to the 1997 Titanic and this wasn't quite at that level. I'm giving a five, a good, like I said, great production value here. Really impressive. It's just a little too scattershot for me to love it in the same way. You're jumping in and out, and you're getting little glimpses of everything that's going on, which is a great way to tell the history, but maybe not the best way to build an emotional connection in a conventional narrative. So what about James Cameron's film from 1997, Dan? So I wanted to unabashedly love this Titanic but some of the things we talked about brought it down. The dialogue is clunky. It's too much. We didn't need the the full extent of the framing story. And it's just kind of overdramatic. So, you know, I wanted to unabashedly love it. And I did unabashedly love it. Despite its flaws, it completely sweeps you away. It is just absolutely phenomenal. I kind of think if there is an afterlife and there is a heaven... Going through the pearly gates sounds like the key change in My Heart Will Go On. It's just like this sweeping, beautiful, cinematic, over-the-top, luscious melodrama. Leaves nothing on the table. It goes all in. It has stars and power. It's something I want to see on a big screen. I thought about a 7 or an 8. High 7, low 8. I'm giving it our masterpiece rating. Maybe I'm being too generous these days. Maybe I'm too generous of spirit as a as a film watcher. This is a tour day good for me. Eight out of eight. That's great. Well, I'm glad I could turn you on to it or make you watch it through to the end. And I am going to give it actually a seven. Exceptionally good. No bones at all about giving it an eight. I think that's very defensible. Uh, we gave Groundhog Day an eight. That was on my... 100 film favorites. I gave Return of the Living Dead an 8, which was, I guess, not an official inductee, but would be now. And I think there's a little bit holding it back. Uh, Not the runtime for me. As far as three-hour movies go, this is the briskest one I can think of. On multiple rewatches, some of the things post-hitting the iceberg... I think we didn't necessarily need, like, uh, being held in the prisoner hold underneath the ship. 
when it just seems like there's more important things to focus on. But I really, really love this movie. Nothing will stop me from sitting down and watching it with new people. And as far as 90s blockbusters are concerned, this is the one that's going to stand the test of time as really being a cinematic achievement. It really pulled at my heartstrings. Like, if I had been younger, this could have been iconic for me. Like, I can see why this was the movie for you know, 15 year old girls at the time or whatever. It is really that effective in my opinion. And I agree. I was kind of almost doing it as a bait and switch complaining about how long it was because I actually think the length more or less works. You walk out of this and you're not thinking, God, why did I have to sit through three hours just to watch a bunch of people die? You walk out of it thinking that was like a transformative piece of cinema at its peak spectacle. And that's where I land. Wonderful. Well, Thanks for giving me an excuse to revisit Titanic 1997 and to dip my toe into some different waters with A Night to Remember. I have broadened my horizons a little bit today, but been able to return to an old favorite. So what is up next on our bill of fare? What's our next port of call? So we just watched an iconic 1990s movie, generally considered one of a masterpiece cinema. I'm going to be staying in that realm with a mid-90s movie that's generally considered a masterpiece, and that is Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, the movie from 1995. Another movie with an iconic theme song, by the way. Oh, man. Are you telling me that it's Morphin time? (laughs) I would say that it is. This is a movie I haven't seen in 15 years, probably. Probably more than that, honestly. And I do not remember at all if it is good or if it was just something I liked because it was a kid. And I guess we'll be finding out. So I'm looking forward to discussing Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, the movie from 1995 with you. Join us again next week, listeners, not viewers. (laughs) Uh, But I do hope you feel inspired to check out some of the movies that we talk about on the show and tell us what you think. You're here, there's nothing I fear. If we had more time, I wanted to talk more about the song. Oh, yeah. I should have busted out my recorder. (laughs) Oh, missed opportunity. (laughs) 